Welcome, you are listening to Mullis Legal's Diversity Dialogue. Mullis Legal is the proud sponsor of the Mullis Legal Award for Diversity as part of the 2017 Property Council Ryder Levitt Bucknell Innovation and Excellence Awards. We are committed to supporting and promoting diversity and inclusion in the legal profession as well as within the industries with which we collaborate. This is why we are holding the Diversity Dialogue. We would also like to give a special thanks to the Property Council of Australia for their support in these podcasts. They have exceptional initiatives to support diversity and inclusion in the property industry. So go check them out at propertycouncil.com.au. This week, we are talking about the national and global issues that may have a profound effect on the various aspects of diversity in the workplace and in the community more generally. I'm Anya Barnovich. I'm a senior lawyer at Mollis Legal, and I'll be your host for this week's Diversity Dialogue. Today, I have the lovely Louise Ferris joining me. Louise is the HR Director of McCullough Robertson Lawyers. She's responsible for overseeing the firm's leadership development and participation in the firm's diversity initiatives. And can I say, she has done an excellent job with identifying and implementing some big diversity initiatives at McCullough Robertson, which we'll discuss further in this podcast. She's also a trooper for engaging in this interesting discussion with me whilst still battling a lingering cough that she has impressively suppressed for most of this discussion. And for those not familiar with the firm, McCullough Robertson is a leading Australian law firm that has offices along the eastern seaboard of Australia. The firm is genuinely dedicated to improving diversity and inclusion. And in recognition of this, it is a finalist of the Mullis Legal Award for Diversity for more than 250 employees as part of the 2017 Property Council Innovation and Excellence Awards. So what better way to celebrate than to talk about some topical matters on diversity? Louise, thank you for joining us today. Today we're talking about current global and national issues facing diversity. Now before we begin, I've been asking my podcast guests what are their top three diversity issues that they care about at the moment and why? Uh, look, thank you. I think for me, given my history in the legal industry, which is over 20 years, so quite a conservative industry, and given that I've seen the diversity debate commence um, and shift as it has, for me right now, the three top issues is around sustainability. So when I say sustainability, it's looking at the diverse workforce that we have the challenges of life in general and creating an environment where we create careers or or create um, a way of working that's sustainable, so it's doable. It doesn't have its high highs and its low lows um, when we're trying to manage all of the issues around work commitments and requirements and the heavy roles of a lawyer as well as the home life and and the domestic duties, which the reality is most still fall on uh, the woman to do in the workforce. So for me, that issue is around sustainability and that work-life integration. I've probably got a view on the use of language of work-life balance, because I think balance gives you that sense of wanting to make it even, and it's anything but. uh, So it's that sustainability. So that's my number one. Second is, I think, again, probably related to the industry that I know best is around governance and the issue of old practices, old, I hate to say the word, policies or processes that when looking at structures of the firm or the governance of the firm have blind spots in them around allowing the best people to make their way through to lead 
firms and lead those organisations. So it's around understanding and really challenging the the governance structures of firms and to allow uh, leaders to take opportunities and to be given those opportunities. So that's my second. Breaking the traditions. Absolutely, absolutely. And the third is really an extension of that, but continuing to, uh, and it's probably a bit of a, a, a trendy term, but hack the habits around, again, in our industry where we've done it before, it's worked continue to do it but just challenging those habits a little bit more to really try and make that change and and allowing those people coming into our industry so the younger generation to be brave enough to hack the status quo and to, to, to question and allow that to be challenged a bit more. It reminds me of that saying, if it's not broken, why fix why it? fix it? That's exactly. right. Exactly, and changing that. Right. Shall I wanted to ask you your thoughts on um, gender diversity at the bar. It seems to be an interesting challenge. It's still a heavily male-dominated area. There was a recent survey conducted by the New South Wales Bar Association which indicated that women represented less than 10% of senior council. And I'm sure these figures are comparative and very similar in Queensland. And this is despite women accounting for more than half of law graduates in New South Wales law schools. I'm pretty sure it's similar here. And they also outperformed their male counterparts academically. So in recognising this gender gap, um, I was reading this article how a lot of major law firms are now making more of a conscious commitment to boost the number of briefs that they give to female barristers to hopefully help improve that gender equality in the profession. Is this something that McCullough Robertson is considering at the moment or have they already made a commitment to? We've actually made the commitment to we were one of the um, first firms certainly to sign up to the Gender Equitable Briefing Policy, which is a policy through the the Law Council of Australia, which outlines the targets that firms should be aiming for and that we should be reporting against. And I think the reason the firm was keen to participate is because it's that old, I guess, HR or even business speak, you know, what gets measured gets done or gets a focus from that perspective. So as far part of the diversity committee that we have here, we have set up a working group which is made up of lawyers which have set about our action plan in each of the groups about how what they currently do and looking at the targets that we want to reach, what changes, what do they need to be conscious of, what opportunities do they need to, to create. And some groups have significant challenges in facing to reach those targets because of the availability of female barristers, whether it be the junior ranks or the senior ranks, that they're limited. And again, if you overplay that commercial reality of of driving and meeting the client's needs, which are paramount, it's a challenging situation to to be conscious of in a busy in busy time. But we believe that by having the conversation, by setting some goals and thinking creatively of where we can work with the barrister, the key barrister relationship that we already have to ask them about how we together can improve or give greater opportunity to those females coming through the ranks. We think that's only a healthy debate to be having or conversation to be having. And this is an ongoing agreement or commitment? Absolutely. So the first reporting, it's September every year and the first set of targets are to be reviewed late 2018. Are you seeing a lot of firms getting on board with this too? I am. Uh, certainly the, the big ones I've seen uh, make that commitment. It's certainly created also some debate, I think, from the New South Wales Law Society that have given their support to it. Also Queensland Law Society, where they have themselves come out with their own guidance that's outside of the gender equitable briefing policy because they also believe that different conditions present different challenges to firms' briefing. So the barristers that can be accessed in the regional Queensland is very different to those that the opportunity and the pool of people that you have to 
brief in the in the city area. So it's recognising those local conditions. We believe that the national guidelines address that adequately, um, and so maintain that that commitment to that national guideline, um, especially because of our offices both in in Queensland and New South Wales. You were saying that there is that challenge, though, that you have to address with having the availability of female counsel. But this is a great initiative. I think it really opens up an opportunity for people who are considering going to the bar to think that there's a chance for them to have a sustainable career at the bar. That's exactly right. We were the first corporate member to join the Women Lawyers Association in Queensland. Uh, we're a member already in New South Wales, but in Queensland, because both bodies play a role in linking the profession with the bar community um, to enable those relationships to start to form. So it's about getting to know the female barristers out there. So I um, had a bit of a read of some of the things that um, you guys have been involved in um, in relation to diversity, and I noticed that you conducted a bit of a pilot program on the concierge program last year. You know, I'd like to talk more about that. Firstly, you know, is this something that you're rolling out into the firm now? And also, you know, how was that experience? Well, actually, t- tell me about the program first, and then we'll go into more detail. Yeah, sure, absolutely. The program came about probably linking with that first point that I raised about the three issues that we face and that sustainability and creating an, a work career that is perceived by our both our junior women and our senior women um, that can be done sustainably. And this benefit is one of many things that I think is, is required to assist with that sustainability and it's it's making sure that uh, when the, the peaks of the work environment are on and times get tough that there is mechanisms and the concierge one of them that we can put in place to assist or take some of that stress or pressure off and it's essentially looking at time giving back time as a business as a legal business what we sell are our lawyers time so we make our money through our lawyers being here and doing the work for their client and and billing for that time and the concept came to me when talking with the the person that that runs the concierge collective who we work with where she said, well, we can give your employees back time. So if that enables them to spend more time with you and do the work that's required at that point in time, we can give them we can give them back some of that time. So all of that sounded great, thinking well, this is, might have some legs, and looking at ways that we could then make that real for our lawyers. And we are in the middle of running a pilot at the moment, so we've got 15 people in our Brisbane office and we've got four in our Sydney office that are absolute standard users and have access to this program throughout the 12 months that we're piloting it. We also have then people coming on and off being able to use this benefit and that's how I see in the more longer term this benefit being available. And it's designed for when, I'll give you an example, say we have male and female going into a heavy litigation trial. So that trial could take a a heavy month in preparation and similar period in in running that. So for that that period of time there is a, a high focus on being able to get through work. During that time, life continues. So things around the house still need to be done. Things still need to be done with family life. We can take some of that pressure off them while through the access of the concierge. So if they need to be in a client meeting or a, an appearance that day and something has gone wrong at home, if we can have the concierge service do that for them. Or we can help life's to-do list continue to tick over while for a period of time, and we hope a, a short period of time, they're investing heavily in that work. So it's coming back to that work-life integration that at times works on and when it's on, it's very busy and there can be stressful situations where the life to-do list continues to build up and need to be done. So it's being able to manage uh, that with our employees to make 
life a bit more sustainable. To help with that juggling. <laughs> Smooth not, out the peaks. Yeah. That's right. Choosing where you spend the time. And at times you've got other influences that, that mean that you've, you can make a commitment here. But this part of life continues on. So as far as how it's going, it's going very well. We've also been able to use this service and this relationship with this service during some other times that we've faced. You know, long-term employees that may have some health issues or something in life means that just giving them this little bit of help around the house has made a difference. So it's also been a wonderful benefit to be able to say to an employee who, who faces a tough time, you know what, it's okay we'll look after that for you. So we've been able to use it from that perspective as well. So overall it's been positive feedback from the staff who have used it? Absolutely. Have you seen this something similar in other firms? No, not in my experience. And working with, again, uh, the concierge service, they had been delivering this service to individuals for a long time. And I think there's a number of businesses or industry that's even sort of popped up through delivering this service to individuals, but never on on an organisational level um, from their experience. So I don't know, I'm not confident or or have research enough to say that we were the first, but until someone challenges me, I'll I'll say we're the first. Yeah, we're the first that I've heard of. So (laughs) that's great. I'll take it. (laughs) Speaking of the flexible work arrangements that you do have, I'm actually interested to know in your experience and what you've seen, what the pros and cons or constraints to flexible work arrangements are. So the internal and the external challenges. And for example, with the internal, you know, what has been the perception among staff as well as business performance and external being, for instance, client expectations or the industry norms? The What I've seen, again, has been over the, f- the few years, I think we've, as an organisation and as a leadership group, we continue to learn how to work with the changing nature of the workforce, which I think... You know, my question is, is, is flexibility the new norm? You know, the reality is that we have a number of people working in formal arrangements, but we've created an environment where people can come and go quite easily and work flexibly. So with that has been the same, I guess, challenges that we faced internally first, if I tackle that, where people have, you know, through the years had their first experience of working with someone uh, flexible, whether it be part-time or, or varied hours, and their question is, well, what type of work can I give them? What? How do I make this work? And it's just coming back to that very basic model that we consistently say about everyone that it is about the conversation for the individual and what flexibility will work for that individual and what will work for that business and how that works and being clear as both the manager and supervisor. So I have seen situations where that conversation probably hasn't either occurred or been as clear as it should be and and, and we've had to tackle the same issue where part-time workers have felt excluded or, you know, when I walk out the door I can feel people watching me. Have we had that? Yes, I've been in organisations where we have had that. Does that get cleared up with some genuine two-way conversation? Nine times out of ten, yes, it does. That if we clear with what they need to contribute and what's required of them and why that fits in the role that they do and we're clear with that and they understand that and give them the tools that they need to do, nine times out of ten, again, everyone turns up to do their very best that they can do in their job and they make it work and we can make that that work. This challenges again, internally around ensuring that we are mindful 
school. And this is a bit more of that hacking of the habits of scheduling team meetings or scheduling that rapport building activity, whether it be team meetings or even just being able to sit and have a, you know, a Friday afternoon drink and recognising that people have responsibilities. Does that work? Well, maybe we change that up a little bit and do something a little bit different. So that social and that fun element is still a very important element of the employee relationship. And so it's it's thinking internally how that works. And again, as simple as it sounds, but I'm a believer in just if we talk about it, we can often solve things. Um, externally, I've seen, certainly if I take the examples in this organisation, I've seen a couple of our partners, uh, and I'll, I'll name Samantha Daly in, in this, be... I'm not even going to call it courageous because I think uh, she, she's just tackled this as a way of doing business where she's been open to her clients in the way that she works, ask them how they work, what works best for them, puts suitable messaging on her emails when needed about her times and how she's working. This is the reality of, of how she integrates her work and life and she's very much a case of saying my clients are part of that and, and I want open dialogue and they've been very open to that and that works very well. Have I also seen situations where we've had responses saying I can't possibly put on my email that I'm not working today or it's an out of office day I can't let my clients know that yes we've had that situation too but again it's just taking that change at the pace that 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 brings everyone along with that change and I think again the more we talk the more we we include everyone in that conversation including our clients um, I think the better solution we can get because of course like the the lawyers when I say we're in a long-term sustainable employment relationship we want to be in a long-term sustainable client relationship so it's it's thinking about it from that perspective as well. The key message here is communication and from managing the external challenges would be you know managing the client expectations to make it work and so speaking of sustainability, I have my, my next question actually touches on this and it sort of looks at millennials. There seems to be a common trend with millennials to switch jobs or even careers every few years, you know, rather than staying in one place for a long time. You know, at this rate, I think the concept of long service leave may be obsolete in the future or the definition of what constitutes long service leave may have to change to accommodate that. Is this a trend that you see happening at McCullough Robertson? And if so, what has McCullough Robertson done in addressing that? Yeah, look, absolutely. The answer is yes. For a recent partner retreat, actually, I needed to go through the exercise of looking at length of service. And we broke down the length of service from the 80s to 90s, the 90s to 2000s, and the 2000s to the current. So we had a look at what the average uh, length of service would have been back then of the employees and, and so forth. And has the trend of average length of service dropped? Yes, I think most organisations would find that. Do I see long service leave going? I would say no, because I still think there is a significant part of our workforce that for security and if their employment experience is one that matches their needs, then they will be loyal and that will continue. I think it's such an, a rate of change in the work environment if they're able to find something that continues to provide them with challenge and opportunity and purpose. I think you will see long serving employees. And it's probably on that point that for the, part, for the same partner retreat that we spoke about, I spoke at the weekend and said it is a significant issue that we need to understand that the generation that we currently have, and, and I would argue, uh, not being a millennium myself, but even the generation before, uh, wants this in, the, in their employment experience, that they are wanting an opportunity to create their own, uh, I guess, skill and challenge and, and grow. They are wanting the ability to work in a way that they have strong relationships, but they're also wanting to work for something bigger than themselves, that that purpose piece 
that there's a sense of belonging, that there's a sense of the greater achievement as a team. And I think that piece in the relationship, if we can get that right as an employer, that often will keep people connected to look at continuing their career maybe for a bit longer and stretching out their length of service with the organisation for just that little bit longer, which means then they probably get into a different part of their life and they may be then entering into a families or, or, or different stage of their life, which means other sides of our benefit and our employee experience then can can kick in and provide that support so it's thinking about and I've challenged the partners to think about what that generation needs at that point because that generation will then grow and need something else but right now I think our young lawyers are looking for something that allows them to drive that skill development that growth and that challenge but just be part of something that's a a greater sense of of self that's part of that purpose piece I think and that's that's a challenge of every organization and so you were saying that you undertook that data review was that for the purpose of identifying these problems and addressing the staff retention or sustainability around it absolutely I think the clearest way um, or the clearest outcome of looking at engaged employees is through turnover so I wanted to just take things a little bit deeper around that turnover and looking at the past of McCullers and what has obviously kept employees in the previous decades for long periods of time at McCullough Robertson and that sense of family, that sense of that greater achievement is very much a part of the history of the firm. So everyone knowing everyone, everyone celebrating the success and being part of the really strong brand that formula can continue in the current generation. I think we probably don't talk enough about it or celebrate it enough or, or realise the strength behind that sense of, of being a McCulloch Robertson people, person is, and just reminding the partners of that. So it's just adjust, looking at the culture and I guess nurturing that just so that young lawyers have a sense of belonging. Absolutely. So another area of diversity that um, I'm interested to know from your perspective is mental health in the legal profession. Louise, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, it states that you're a certified mental health first aid officer. And since you've worked among the legal profession for quite a number of years, I'm assuming it's safe to say that you've had plenty of first-hand experience in this area. So as a certified mental health first aid officer, what does that role allow you to do in the law firm? Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to gain this qualification a few years ago now and I say lucky enough because it enabled me certainly to get a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of the importance you know, of, of mental health and the significant issue that we do face in the work environment but also um, as a legal industry as well. We need to be very, very you know, clear of, of the environment within which we work and what, that, what impact that can have. What it means for me is very simply that I have a, an adequate enough skill level that I can be a first responder. Very similar to a workplace health and safety officer of tradition, of, of old, I guess, where the first aid officer of someone's cut their arm or or broken their leg or not feeling well, they're skilled to a level that they can be a first responder and able to be able to understand the issue to a level and then provide them with access to the right and refer them on. And being a mental health first aider is is exactly the same, that I have a level of skill and knowledge to be able to ask questions and listen and be able to determine then the best way to refer that person to the next person that is more skilled, more equipped and able then to work with them in a long longer term relationship to enable them to manage um, the situation that they face. So it comes with great responsibility because you are dealing with 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 someone's health and being confidential and um, you exercising that 
that judgment is really very, very important because you are that first responder and treating the role with privilege is, is in my mind, very, very important. We've been lucky enough here at McCulloch Robertson to uh, train a further 10 officers. So when I first joined, I was the only qualified and they've been very, very supportive to see me train uh, all levels within the organisation for the mental health officers. And Monday and Tuesday this this year, we also have a further 10 going through. So I can't um, I can't take away from the commitment that we're able to, to provide that. And what that means is that we've got people, male, female, partners, lawyers, business support staff, all qualified in this area to be able to be that first responder. Because not everyone wants to come to HR or talk with us, but there are other people that in the organisation that is that have that same skill level as well. And the ad- added benefit is that general awareness of mental health issues doesn't just rest with me. It starts to, to rest across the organisation and we start to get that knowledge across the organisation. So that's what that role allows me to do. Um, I read an interesting article that essentially indicated that the characteristics for what makes a good lawyer are actually the same characteristics that predispose them to mental illness. The article actually states that you get that almost perfect storm of a pessimistic perfectionist. So looking back back at your own personal experiences, what are your thoughts on that article? Look, I think that article rings many, many truths from what I've seen. And that's what I enjoy about this industry very much in a way that we are dealing with very intelligent people, high performers, um, people that absolutely want to do the very best that they can. And, And that puts pressure and that puts constant pressure on themselves and the family within which they operate. So I would say that, yes, it is, it's spot on. You were mentioning that lawyers as well and other people are able to get this certification. So is that something that people can just put their hand up if they're interested in doing? Absolutely. Certainly in the first instance we had, we asked people if they would be interested. What I'm really pleased to say that coming out of that I had people putting their hand up saying when the course is next done I want to do that. We're advertising it through our general training calendar and it's part of our learning and development framework so people see that as an opportunity for them to do that and we can undertake that. We then are now building on that and having uh, members of my team continue on to do further knowledge around suicide prevention and and other skills as well. Um, Again, the great thing that we've been able to do is we've been able to work with a not-for-profit organisation called the Mental Illness Fellowship of Queensland and we've been able to work closely with them in a way that they've been able to build their skills and use their first-hand knowledge to then train us. And what that's enabled them to do is then create their own line of income because like all not-for-profit organisations, in many spaces it's difficult to receive funding. There's never enough money to do what they need to do, but they have now been able to generate um, a corporate business that provides this training and therefore, and that money goes right back into the community hub that they have out at Hurston and the community programs that they provide across Queensland. Wow, that's excellent. Lawyers, as with many other professions, are often in a stressful environment, you know, with many long working hours to meet billable targets. And often these conditions can easily put a strain on anyone's mental health and not everyone is open to talking about it. So from an organisational perspective, what do you think law firms actually need to do or to have in place to address this? Mm. I think there's many things that they need to, to have in place. Again, starting from a leadership perspective right through to that, that basic sort of toolkit and, and skill and knowledge within the organisation to be able to deal with 
situations that they need to. But most importantly, I will start with, I think all organisations need that leadership example and willingness to talk and, and be supportive of the fact that our profession you know, certainly is a highly stressful one and, and one where the reality is we do need to deal with, with mental health issues. I think one of the most significant campaigns in the point in time of the legal industry and it showed that cooperation that law firms can have is the Are You OK Day campaign that was run September 15 where it was launched then and ran for 12 months where there was anyone from partners of law firms, uh, partners of significant law firms, so well, well known law firms were talking about their own experience and so that's breaking down of stigma I think still remains the most important thing that a firm and organisation needs to do. And it needs to look at being able to ask, are you okay, not just one day a year, but every day. Because our organisation is a relationship game. It's a relationship game with our clients, but it's a relationship game internally. And we are the best ones to be able to judge if something's not quite right of our colleagues because we see them every day. So um, making it okay to say, are you okay? Um, and knowing what to do with that answer. So banishing that pink elephant in the room that people, you know, when they're reluctant to talk about it. Um, I, I guess from general observation, what I've seen, lawyers run the balance of being able to deliver and perform well and show that they're resilient in those sort of conditions that they're subjected to, but at the same time trying to manage the internal aspect of how it impacts them emotionally. Absolutely. I think it comes back to that sustainability. There will be times when we all are very stressed and highly charged and it, it's it's working through that and creating ideally a sustainable culture where we are keeping an eye on workloads and and the amount of pressure and people's behaviours and the outcomes. So it's, are we getting it right? I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not sitting here saying we are getting it right every time, but um, we are certainly willing to talk about it. Are there actual designated partners in the firm that are there to be sort of like the go-to for lawyers, for example, to, to be there to, to speak to? Yes, we have a combination of partners now qualified as mental health first aiders, as well as I have three partners who are on my workplace wellbeing steering committee. So there's two partners in Brisbane and one in Sydney that I report to on the activities that we're doing in this space and the general workplace wellbeing. The good thing also is that there's acknowledgement that in our workplace health and safety policy we have been very open in acknowledging that we are not only looking after physical hazards but psychological hazards as well and again my experience is that getting that commitment and policy it's been challenging in previous organisations but for here it was a case of no you know, we, we want to make that commitment at a policy level. Oh, that's reassuring to hear. So you've mentioned before that you've been in the HR area for a long time in various firms, as we've, we've seen in your LinkedIn bio. What are some of the diversity trends that you've actually seen come and go? And how has the conversation around diversity changed? When thinking about this, there's two aspects to the changes that I've, I've seen over my time when the diversity debate or the question around diversity and the realisation around diversity began, that it began very much as a woman-led initiative. It was women leading that conversation. People or, or organisations' response was typically that a woman would lead the movement of such or would be the one to drive the change. And I think we've learnt through mistakes, you know, through the realisation that it's a business issue and seeing things like the male champions of change and other male groups come through and realising that the people at the top, which are often male, need to be the ones leading the discussion. So making it, moving it from a, a women-only issue to a business issue, I think is the, the trend that I've seen. And the second is that 
again, probably in the early stages, there were, the response was, I oh, will put in a program. We'll put in a one-off around unconscious bias or a, a diversity program. So there were sort of programs implemented. Again, over time, I think I've seen the need or the realisation that businesses need to respond. It's a, it's a way of doing business. This is the way you want to do things around here in a way that it's diverse and inclusive. So it's not just a program and that's implemented and, and boxes ticked. I think we've shifted to realise that it's just a, a better way of doing business. It's a more holistic. Absolutely. So working in the legal industry for quite some time, you've probably heard of some recent developments. So we saw Australia's first female Chief Justice of the High Court, Susan Kiefel, who was recently appointed and sworn in. And then we have Justice James Edelman, who was one of the youngest judges to be appointed on the High Court bench. Do you think this sort of diversity in relation to gender and age is a reflection of what's happening in the broader legal community? I mean, for example, with private law firms appointing partners and uh, addressing the gender ratio there? I'm going to say yes and no and expand on the reason I say yes and, and no to that question because yes, I I have seen improvement and I think on, on many different benchmarks, whether it be through the WGIA index, etc., or even just the general sort of benchmarking of law firms, that there is definitely progress being made. Do I think when I look at appointments um, like Susan and James, do I think that then in the private practice we're at the same pace or there's sort of the same environment? That's where I say no. I think for us in this space, in the private practice, the barrier that we must continue to challenge is that commercial reality of looking at providing opportunities, whether it be through entering into partnership or um, briefing barristers. Often I think decisions that are made in that space are, are driven by the commercial reality. And so trying to really change people's habits around whether it be briefing someone or making an investment in someone that um, when you look holistically at the business and what they can provide to the business I think it just it, it's it's a bit more pressured by that commercial reality. It's almost a balance between you know merits based as well and achieving you know the business objective and then taking into account the diversity aspects so it is a, a balancing act. Absolutely mm. absolutely. Okay so given the competitive environment which many law graduates face. What sort of advice would you give to a young aspiring lawyer who may, you know, encounter some common diversity related hurdles in their life or, you know, just coming fresh out of university? Mm-hmm. I would encourage them because they have come out of a very competitive environment and by nature they will be uh, competitive because certainly I've, you know, seen uh, some very, very high performing graduates coming out of the university and, and currently working. What I would say to them and this is certainly what I'm also saying to the generation that are in my partnership is that in this diversity space and whether you expand that to include the mental health space that we've spoken about but in this general work environment diversity and inclusion I would encourage the young lawyers to look at these two areas as not being a competitive space this is where cooperation sharing of knowledge sharing of information sharing of ways that they have addressed or or questioned current hurdles that they face I think is the most powerful so I think my chairman supports this very much so Dominic McGann where he says this is not a competition this is a better cooperation across the firms and so we've been very open to say if we do it here and it's working we will give you our policy we will share whatever we have because if we can learn uh, we then hope the whole industry benefits from that so I would say look at the hurdles here is something that others will face share that knowledge share that information 
connecting with those networks, connecting with those associations and, and look at this as a, yeah, a cooperative topic of discussion and um, will only benefit, as I said, the industry as a whole. And changing that competitive mentality that they've sort of been groomed to have throughout uni and getting those grades and everything. That can stay in another area, but I would look at this area as being one of of cooperation. All right, so that wraps up our podcast. Thank you so much, Louise, for your time and for the interesting discussion, Um, especially your insights from a HR's perspective into the legal profession and all the things that we discussed certainly around topics that you know not everyone's open to having an, an engaging dialogue about so thank you and a thank you for the opportunity that wraps up our podcast for today with louise thank you for tuning in and listening to this week's diversity dialogue with louise ferris and mccullough robertson lawyers It's really great to see what the firm is doing to address specific diversity issues in the legal profession. There are actually two issues that resonated with me from that podcast, and that was what the firm is doing to help develop a sustainable career for their lawyers through the concierge program. This is a fantastic initiative to support lawyers in better managing the juggle between work and personal life. And the second issue, which I'm glad to see the firm is addressing, is the gender gap between male and female barristers. McCullough Robertson's commitment to the gender equitable briefing policy is the right step in helping to develop sustainable careers for female barristers. Links to anything that we've talked about or referred to in this podcast will be on our website at mullerslegal.com slash diversity. Also, please like and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search Mullerslegal. Next week, we'll be talking to the delightful Gemma Lloyd of Diverse City Careers about diversity recruitment and hiring trends in Australia. My lovely colleague, Alexandra Geelan, will be hosting that podcast, so tune in next week for this lively discussion. 